Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Gianni. And today we're going to be talking about how to convince management that we should invest in Agile methodologies. Yes, and, and also all of the, let's say, more technical aspects of it, continuous integration, automation, what have you. And I'm, I'm really excited about this episode because it actually stemmed from a listener question. We, we got an awesome email a couple of days ago uh, by somebody who was trying to, to get their organization to become better at, you know, at delivering good stuff, quite simply. And he was, he was wondering how to do that. And one of the questions he asked was, how do I get my management to see the light? So how do you get your management to see the light? <laughs> it's it can be difficult and it's i would say it's very highly dependent on the specifics of of their management style and your relationship with them and how your company relates to the client whether your company is the client whether you're a an in manufacturer or maybe you're a contract uh, engineering or development organization who's you know doing projects for clients this is the way i work but I would say, so So let's maybe get a little concrete and talk about this particular person's situation where they're uh, in a contract development organization and they have lots of different client projects coming through. And each one has those short-term deadline pressures. And, and in fact, uh, this person mentioned that uh, that often those uh, projects are done on a fixed price, fixed requirement basis. And so there's a lot of rigidity there and he or she can't actually seem to break out of this short-term thinking of just get this particular project done and and no we can't invest in in our process and and in the way our organization does things. So in terms of how to actually get started, uh Luke and I were were discussing this before the episode started and the the short answer is you don't ask for permission. You just start doing the small stuff. Um you start using tools like continuous integration and starting to uh, do unit testing and testing on a small level. And you don't ask permission at all. You just do it. What do you think, Luca? Yes, absolutely. Um, so because those are the tools of your trade, you don't, you don't ask permission about which editor to use. Why should you be asking permission about whether to write unit tests or how to write them or anything of that nature. You just do it because you know it is the right thing to do. It will lead to better code more quickly, will give you more trust, uh, will make you able to, to move forward quickly for longer. You, you don't need to ask your boss to, you know, to weigh, weigh in on Vim versus Emacs. Uh, they don't need to weigh in on whether to use unit tests or not. Um, so yes, that all of the low-level stuff, the, the actual technical stuff, I argue that this is really on the develop, development team to decide that this is a good idea. And, and in fact, particularly with unit tests, that's not even up to the team at large. That's, you know, if you're a developer and you feel like you want to do unit tests, do unit tests. Simple as that. And even I would say even even things like continuous integration, where uh, you know, say you're in the unfortunate position where you're in a in maybe an adversarial work environment, and I would hope if, eventually that you can get out of said environment because it sounds like a, a terrible place to work. But if if you can't get permission to set up 
continuous integration on a server, or if you can't, if your company has very onerous policies where you can't use any cloud services and to get, you know, Jenkins or GitLab set up on a company server inside your network is extremely onerous. Again, I feel for you, but just do it on your own computer. Like, like, you know, bring it back to where, you know, if you, if you can't even do it to where the team can take advantage of it, at least do it to the level where you personally can take advantage of it. Uh, cause I can say, you know, having, having Jenkins or GitLab or any continuous integration server, you know, running, uh, in a container on your, uh, on your desktop machine, um, confers benefits to you. Like you, you have that, uh, you have that same surety, at least on the code that you're developing. And that's a way to start. And then again, after you can demonstrate some improvement, some actual return on that investment uh, of your own time, that's when you can start to convince others and take it to the next level and grow it incrementally. Yes. And in fact, you can, you can start even smaller than that. Instead of installing Jenkins in a container, maybe all you need is a new make target that says, you know, that's called make test or something. Right. And it runs a bunch of unit tests. And, and either you are your own CI and you just run it because why not? Or you have something really trivial, like, like a Git post commit hook or something that just, you know, just runs this locally without any infrastructure at all. But you, you know, you getting somewhere, you making the first steps and then you can iterate on that. That's a really great point. I love that. And and this is even, it's even something that, uh, that ties in something you had taught me a while ago in terms of the dipping your toes into automation. You don't necessarily even have to automate everything when you have, say, a, say you have a, a release process that is multi-step and there's lots of manual steps to um, perform a release process. And, and, you know, one of our big, uh, arguments to you would be to automate that. That's one of the very first things. But before you even automate the whole thing, you can create an automated checklist. And again, this is just a, it's just a target in your make file that basically says, do this, now do this, now do this. And then slowly over time, you can start to replace those manual steps and automate them one at a time. Um, so again, these are all things that you can do without asking for permission. Uh, just like Lucas said, these are the tools of the craft. And, um, <laughs> again, you, you shouldn't be asking your boss or, or anyone outside the development team, you know, what editor to use. It's just, that's your personal choice. And, and for you to create a make file to build your software and create a unit test and create a make target to run that unit test, that's your choice. Just do it. Exactly. So, um, certain low level things don't even ask. Just just do it because you know it's the right thing because you know that it helps you. And then maybe you can get others to see that it would help them as well. And, you know, and you get some kind of movement going. But even if that were to fail, you would still have improvements at least for yourself. Right, right. So so I guess, so in, in terms of this episode, the general flavor of things in terms of coming up with arguments to convince management to make a change. Uh, management doesn't necessarily listen to the same podcasts or read the same articles you do or have any care at all about the technical details. They want the result. 
And if you're working for a client, the client wants the result. And yes, you know, beautiful, maintainable code is a good thing, but only in that it achieves a result, which is say a lower, you know, higher quality, lower recall rate, you know, lower total cost of ownership or total project cost, that kind of thing. Um, so in terms of coming up with arguments to convince management to take a certain action, it's all going to be uh, starting small and building up from there and using small results to demonstrate credibility and be able to take the next step. And many of those steps you can take without asking permission at all and test them yourself and make sure you can quantify what improvements it made to, it's, it has made. If you can't quantify the improvement it made to you, how are you going to convince someone else? And also taking small incremental steps goes a long way, I think, towards uh, making your management feel better about giving you permission to do these things because you're not asking for two months off to create this marvelous uh, CI solution. Um, and uh, I don't know, you need to procure your machines and whatever. No, you just, you know, you're carving a little time out of your day to set up automation and then use it, right? Unit tests, whatever. Um, and that gives you the quick win. That gives you the quick ROI um, that you need to convince yourself, maybe, that you need to convince your management, that you need to make your management feel good about this. Because, I mean, they're in a diff difficult position. Let's not forget this. You you are asking them for something. You know, they you are asking for time not spent coding in, in some sense. And the customer on the other end is is asking for more code more quickly. Right. So they they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. And if you if you can help them by saying, look, I can I can do the first few steps at almost no cost because we're going to build this really like simple system that will make it easier for them to say, yes, let's try this. Um, there is not much risk involved in it. Right. And there's a, uh, there's a well-known blog post by Joel Spalsky. It's, uh, it's probably 20 years old at this point or almost 20 years old. Um, you know, he was writing a long time ago about essentially he was a fan of more process getting out of this uh, cowboy, co cowboy coding mentality. Um, you know, he advocated things like, again, one step builds, uh, uh, having automated builds running in the background, uh, having a schedule that everyone understands using a bug tracker, like very basic things, but that a lot of people didn't do at that time. And unfortunately, a lot of people still don't do. And his point, he wrote a post about how to convince people to adopt these practices. And his point was make a Make it, make yourself start with yourself or as small a team as, as possible and make a center of excellence. Like if, if management won't start using a bug tracker, you use a bug tracker personally. And when someone comes to you with a bug, say, I'm not going to remember, can you just put it in the bug tracker? And when you tell them 20 times, eventually they'll start using the bug tracker and simply refuse to take bug reports any other way. Um, and, and so, you know, that was, that was kind of more basic foundational things. And, but it, the same thing applies to these agile automated methods that we're advocating. Um, just do them yourself and, and grow it within your organization organically and incrementally and one step at a time. Exactly. But since we're talking of management, management always wants to see an ROI, a return on investment. 
do you think it's possible to show an ROI on on testing and on automation? Right. So in in order to show a return on investment, you've you've got to measure something. So uh, you you've got to quantify some aspect of your development process, whether it's um, release cycles is a really good one. You know, uh, some some combination of features and bugs over time. And so this can be a little bit onerous for you in terms of setting up some infrastructure to measure this kind of thing. But that's to me, that's key is is you have to you have to start tracking and measuring your output as a developer and then maybe as a team. And I see you smiling because it, it's you you've got to be careful there that you don't start optimizing for the wrong thing. But yeah, to me, that's the first step is you have to measure, get measurable output, and then you can work to improve that. What do you think? Yes, exactly. Um, you need to start measuring. You need to get a feel for how how it really has an impact. But generally speaking, you know, um, I'll try and dig up a link to a talk that I heard a couple of years ago that was really interesting where somebody just did the math on spending time testing. And it was so convincing. Like, um they spent, I don't know, $30,000 a month on time, sp- invested in, in testing and QA work. And I think they reaped like two, 300,000 in benefits from, from bugs that, that were caught earlier. Not bugs that, you know, that weren't put into the code, but they didn't, they didn't show up only in production. Which of course, especially in embedded, is, is particularly bad. Like you know, at some point a truck comes and takes your device away, and and you know if there's a bug in the software, tough luck. You need to run right. after the truck or something. Um, so so I think that value is in fact particularly great in this line of industry to you know to, to make sure that that you catch as many bugs as early as you can. Right. So it may be as simple as looking at your typical QA process at the end of the, you know, if you're doing things the old fashioned way, maybe you don't do any QA until the end of the project. And, you know, the development team says, here's the release and you start the clock. And QA. Why on earth would you do that? (laughs) Why on earth would you wait until the very end? to find out whether you did things the right way in the first place. Right. And may, and maybe, you know, I'm sure there are companies that do it that way and maybe other companies they're, they're like, no, we companies. Of course, of course you have. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, some, if there's some poor soul from such a company listening to this podcast, again, we, we feel for you, but that, that makes it, that's, I think that's even better in a sense because it's so easy to improve <laughs> yes like it, it's almost talk about low-hanging fruit it's almost impossible not to make that process better but essentially you know when you have that handoff to qa you start the clock and you know what's what is the typical time for your company to manually test and uncover bugs and ship and then is there any measurement post-market of you know, customer complaints or, or bug reports coming in from the field or what have you, and then institute a process change, like on, on a, on a micro level on your own, um, within your own team and see how that affects it. 
you know, like I, and I guarantee, so personally, when I finally adopted uh, test-driven development and I'm, I have very comprehensive unit tests as I'm developing, you know, when I, even when I actually get to runtime, just running it on, on my own development boards, the number of bugs is vastly lower than it was before. Vastly. I mean, it's, it's night and day. I still find them of course. And especially, you know, interaction with hardware, there's unexpected things and things do slip through. As soon as I find something, I go back and add a unit test for it. It never happens again. Um, but I mean, I can, I can, I can tell you just in my own work, like kind of running QA doing, uh, you know, the level of effort I expend on manual testing now is much lower than it was before I started, uh, unit testing. And you can see those same benefits on a team level as well, but you do have to, you do have to measure them somehow. So another note you had made for, for, for us to talk about is agile as a risk management strategy. Um, and that's, so ROI is, is music to management's ears, risk management, uh, and, and mitigating risk in, in many different ways. And, uh, you know, I come from, we both come from safety critical industries. I work in medical devices. So risk management is, you know, baked into the development process of any medical device. And it would be for any other safety critical industry, automotive, aerospace, you know, nuclear power plant, software, whatever. Um, but even even for people in non-regulated industries, risk management at the project level, man, mitigating project risk, uh, is a big deal. Um, so maybe maybe touch on that a little bit. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, exactly. So um, just to just to point this out, safety critical industries really only care about risk as far as you know human lives are concerned. Um, but your project risks, um, your I don't know budget risks, whatever, that's rightly no concern of um, of safety-critical processes. But of course, it's very much a concern for your management. Right. It's, it's not it, – the FDA doesn't care, uh, but you, your management cares. And I, and I think there is, there is even some element mix, like built into the to risk management processes that deal with business risk, as it were. But anyway, go ahead. Exactly. And so – Agile is not, I don't know, is, is not a process framework or something. It's its essentially just a risk management strategy. Um, you set yourself up to spot mistakes as early as, as, off, as possible, or you set yourself up to spot potential for improvement as early as possible and to react to it, you know, avoid problems, um, make use of improvements, whatever the case may be. And I think it's particularly useful in in the situation that that uh, this person found themselves in who, who wrote that magnificent email because they are working at a development shop and they they you know they they build things for their customers. I have no idea what they're building. Um, but this is what they described. And, you know, everybody who has ever worked with a customer knows that customers have no idea what they want. I mean, they have lots of, they, they tell you lots of stories. They have many, many words. But at the end of the day, they just don't know what they really want or need. And I'm not saying this to, like, uh, talk down to customers or something. It's, you know, it's just a matter of fact that you will always find 
better ideas the more you think about something, the more you try something out. Um, and so wouldn't it just be eminently reasonable to set yourself up to discover the best product together with your customer? And this is essentially what, what Agile is about, isn't it? To, to systematically set yourself up to change direction to a better course if you spot it. Absolutely. I, I mean, I can even tie this back to something that's happening for me personally. So we're just finishing up this big house renovation. Um, a lot of our listeners may have gone through that process. It's very painful. We love our contractors, but, um, you know, we wanted to redo a bunch of cabinetry on the kind of the wall that houses our TV. And, and you're looking at, it and you're like, you could specify down to the 16th of an inch, how big a cabinet should be. And then the contractor spends all this time building it in beautiful wood and the painter comes out and paints it. And then there's the big reveal. And I open my eyes and I'm like, Oh, on paper that looked good, but I, I don't actually like how it looks. It's too big. I really wish it were four inches less deep and five inches less wide and two inches taller. Wouldn't it have been nice to build a prototype out of cardboard that would have taken all of 30 minutes and we could actually see the result there and and have a more confidence that all of that development time that we would spend later uh, would actually produce the product that we want. And we did do this probably because I'm well-versed in natural methodologies. This is exactly what we did. <laughs> uh, but that's the same kind of thing. That's the th same kind of thing you want to um, work with your clients on is, uh, you know, they may come to you saying, this is exactly what they want. What's the, what's the fastest way you can test that hypothesis and show them the result and get feedback? Um, and, and present it to them. Like you're, if you want to, they'll say, no, 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 we know what we want. We don't want you to waste time doing that. That's maybe the pushback you'll get, but I think it's relatively easy to come up with, to convince someone in the short term of, you know, what are ways that we can reduce this project risk? Because we want what you want, which is for you to be happy and have a product when we're done with this process, we want you to be happy with this product. And the, the way we get there is by uh, prototyping and testing and getting feedback as, as early as possible and as often as possible. And that will lower the risk that we, the, the risk is that we spend a lot of time and don't get the return. This is a way to, to mitigate that risk and ensure that our development time is a good investment. Yes, and, and let's not forget, it's not just about product risk, so building the right thing. It's it's also about uh, engineering risk. Like, are we building this right? Is what we are trying to do even feasible? Or do we run into, I don't know, hardware limitations, um, weird noise problems, whatever the case may be. It's, you know, whoever has worked in, in Embedded for a while has has lots of stories about how crazy things happen that nobody would ever have imagined. Um, and so prototyping is not just a way to figure out what the client needs, but also whether you can even build it. And we we do this intuitively as engineers. We, you know, we if if there's something we're not quite sure about, we we kind of hack something together on breadboards and, and 
what you don't <laughs> no i'm sorry I, I i i my expression changed because your audio cut out briefly but uh no th- i mean this ties in exactly to what we were talking about in a previous episode where you, where you posited that agile is just old fashioned engineering um and and essentially that's that's what it is you know the, this aspect of prototyping and testing and making sure that things will work on a technical level um uh you know we're we're obviously advocating moving that higher in your in your business development stack as it were and and getting feedback on the product requirements themselves but even at the engineering level um and this is something we wanted to talk about in this episode is is you know dipping your toe into this methodology you can do agile at the engineering level even if you're your company, your organization insists on doing a strict waterfall process at the business level. Um, and maybe that's something we can talk about now is in terms of someone who wants to make a change, who wants to dip their toes in this, test it out, and then use that as a beachhead to convince management to maybe make changes. Um, let's talk about that for a little bit. So DevOps flavor within a waterfall process. Exactly. Have you tried that before? Uh, yes. I mean, I, as, uh, again, being, um, being a solo consultant and, and earlier in my career, um, you know, the, I, I basically put into practice exactly the kind of things we're talking about where the, the organization is operating in a, um, a very upfront design way. And I didn't feel like I had the credibility or authority at the time to try to pitch to management. Hey, why don't we just change the way you do business? no yeah, yeah, yeah. and that, you're fired actually that's, that's <laughs> exactly that's that's a point really um you know that that's a point that's really important i think to listeners maybe you don't feel that you don't have the clout you would need to you know to propose such a change to your co-workers or your management or your customers maybe that feels too scary and maybe you know maybe it is dangerous maybe it would get you fired i have no idea um, but yeah, I'm sorry. I cut you off. Jeff. No, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's basically, uh, it, it's, it's what we had alluded to earlier. What I did have the power on was how I structured my development environment. So given these requirements that are fixed and, and maybe I have concerns that those requirements are not, you know, are going to be regretted at the end of the project, but I don't feel like I have the clout to try to change those requirements. But within, but how to achieve those requirements, at least at the technical level, I do have control over. And so, so you know, doing automated testing, setting up continuous integration, uh, doing subsystem testing and prototyping as early as possible. Um, and where those required early, res- <laughs> you know, other people to join in where it's not just, you know, I, I do have to kind of request resources, spend other people's time. Those were pretty easy sells. I think because people understood intuitively, just like we said, agile is old fashioned engineering. They said, Oh yeah, we, we don't know if that's going to work. Let's you're, that's a great idea. We, we should test that early to make sure we're not going to get three months down the road. And this particular technical strategy, you know, of, of, I don't know, using this offboard ship to do audio encoding or whatever, um, that there's not some system issue buried in there. That's going to bite us. Let's uh, let's uncover and test that early. Um, I, I I would imagine that almost any engineering organization is going to be in favor of that kind of activity. 
And so then once you demonstrate it, then you can start to leverage and just say, hey, you know, is there some way that we can make sure that the requirements <laughs> that we're building to, uh, is there some way where we can demonstrate the effect of those and actually make sure that those require, I'm worried that, that this requirement is not actually useful or, you know, I'm worried that we're not actually, we've come up with this device, but it's not actually going to fulfill the, the real business goals of the client. I'm worried that they're not going to be happy with the result. Is there some way that we can give them something early that they can play with and give us feedback? Exactly. So um, I suppose the point is that um, if you really want to do quote unquote proper agile and involve the customer, it means actually changing the way you do business. And that's that's a fairly big deal. And, and you need buy-in for that from from maybe the non-technical side, maybe, you know, sales, for instance, in your, in your company. So that will, that will be a big change and it will be a difficult change. You know, you will mess it up a couple of times. Don't, don't fool yourself. You will. Um, But I think you will find that it will have been worth it after the fact. So I suppose you can have your secret agile approach as long as you stay on the technical level and it will give you it will give you some valuable feedback it will give you feedback on whether you're building the thing right but unfortunately you will be missing about whether you're building the right thing right and and depending on this is something you you had brought up earlier depending on the relationship you have with your management and the management has with your client and you have your client you can go directly to the client you know even as say you know a, a technical lead and just show them your prototypes and say, hey, what do you think about this? I, I want to be careful. Uh, you know, you, you have to exercise personal judgment here because it could be that you have management who is <laughs> micromanagement and wants to very tightly control any interactions with the client, doesn't want the engineers talking directly to the clients. Um, it, that's very much dependent on your organization. But if you are in a position to be interacting directly with the client, at that point, like, you can start instituting this kind of process yourself where you actually involve the client in in showing them prototypes and getting direct feedback and then pushing that up on your side. Exactly. So the, at some point, you will have to come out openly and say, look, um, we really should change the way we work. But up to some degree, you can you can sneak it past your colleagues. And, you know, you don't need to ask for permission, maybe. Uh, to call your client, you just call your client and say, hey, client, I have something cool to show you. Uh, would you mind taking a quick look and tell me how you like it? And then if that works, then, you know, who's going to tell you to stop? Right. I can, I can, see, the, I can see in a certain dysfunctional organization, especially one that, say, nego- had very big contract negotiations up front, fixed requirements and then their engineers went and showed the proto- like a prototype to the client the client came back and changed their minds i can see a dysfunctional organization that not working out well but i you know i i can only say that uh better to know it early than later cuz yes maybe the i know i know <laughs> it would have come to light anyway like you would maybe you wouldn't have been the messenger but that's the thing. There is no, there is no value in hiding these kinds of things from from the customer because they're going to spot it anyway. Right. 
And you know, if 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 they spot it sooner, at least you have a chance of fixing it and actually, you know, looking good with the customer. But you know, it it goes to the to the heart of one of the problems, I suppose, with Agile, which is that it requires more trust. Instead of 500 pages of specification and big contracts, the customer has to place some trust in you and say, yeah, I believe that those guys are going to deliver something good. We're not quite sure yet what it will look like, but it will be something useful and something good and something that is worth my money. Um, But the point is, if that trust is not there and they write 500 pages of specification and 1,000 pages of contract, they will still get the same bad product. They just have more paper to wave around, but it's not fundamentally going to change anything about how bad the product is. So, yeah, so I I would say if you're in a... If you're in a contract development organization uh, where clients are coming to you to build products, bootstrapping such an organization from the from nothing is very difficult. And and you know you as the technical person probably weren't involved in that. Maybe you're maybe you're a co-founder. Maybe you're not. Um, you know I went through this process. Bootstrapping such an organization, gaining the trust of those initial clients, uh, is very hard. But hopefully. You know, maybe you're you're now a technical lead within a development organization that has been in business for some time and is dysfunctional and and you're unhappy. Like at this point, they can afford to take some risk, you know, try something different on one client. And if you've if you work to build up your credibility within the organization by demonstrating this excellence and this improvement and an ROI, you know, on your technical execution within the project then you would have more clout to start to suggest changes at the project level. And I will say, you know, from the, from the wind friends and influence people school, you don't go in guns blazing saying you're doing it wrong. You need to change to agile. You go in and you point out the problems. You say, Hey, you know, project product manager or project manager, this is the problem I'm seeing. We keep going over budget. We keep, producing products that the client's not happy with this keeps happening how like what are what are some you know i have some ideas but i don't uh, how can we collaboratively come up with a way to improve our development processes to try to solve this is a much like opening with that gentle way is is going to be more effective and i think luca you have a you have some experience with this kind of conversation <laughs> do I ever like it it's so it's so funny in in all of my training somebody will say yes we know that this isn't working like we we have literal decades of experience of <laughs> our project management not working of our budgeting system not working but we can't seem to change our ways it's so strange like if 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 you talk to people they tell you yes yes we have like we have big fixed requirements and um you know according to this project management triangle what what do you have you have requirements you have time and you have resources so i say okay if you have um if you have fixed requirements that means you have um loose re- uh, you know you have open resources and you have open time no 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 we have just the people we have and we we have a very tight deadline and god help us if we miss it um, it can't work and everybody knows it. So of course what happens is that as the deadline draws nearer, the haggling starts and things get 
taken out of the requirements uh, or postponed or whatever. Which, of course, is kind of the agile way, isn't it? Except kind of backwards and like in the in the most painful, most terrible way you can think of. Wouldn't it be much more reasonable to say, yeah, you know, this is a very nice list of things and we'll try to get them all done. But if not, we know which ones we might postpone or skip. I have this in every training, in every training. It's so fascinating. It's almost like it's a people problem and not a technology problem. <laughs> Who told you that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's amazing. Um, so I think that it's just undisputably worth it. And it's undisputably worth it also, for example, to do things like write tests, which ostensibly make you slower. You know, you're, you're not writing productive code. You're just writing those pesky tests and they, you know, they waste your time. But, you know, that's the thing. Slow, what's that saying? Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Um, if you make sure you get things right, you won't waste all of that time chasing down bugs. Like, no, everybody's got time to search, but nobody's got time to tidy up the room. Right. Uh, so I would say if you're, dear listener, if you're out there and you're anywhere along this journey, if you're just starting, if you've, if, uh, if you're looking at this, in fact, you know, one of the words, uh, in this listener who wrote in their email was, unfortunately, I feel that the things you're talking about are just utopia. You know, it's, <laughs> we're, we're mm -hmm. painting this vivid picture of how awesome things are kind of on the other side after this transformation is taking place. Um, and if you're, if you're stuck in the weeds of a, of a very, old fashioned, I don't even want to say old fashioned because agile is old fashioned engineering. If you're, if you're stuck in the, in the, uh, in the weeds of a very, uh, rigid, you know, fire driven, uh, you know, practically like no one sets out to make a fire driven development process, but that's how very rigid development processes end up is they create fires and then you've got to scramble to put them out. If you find yourself in that situation and you don't know how to get started, please reach out to us. If you were along this journey and you, uh, you know, have made some steps but can't figure out the next step or want advice or someone to bounce ideas off, please reach out to us. We love hearing from listeners. Uh, we love um, understanding the the pains that they're having and how we can help them move forward. Uh, so please reach out. We would love to hear from you. Yes, indeed. I think that's a pretty good place to uh, to draw a line it and call it the end. Uh, so, Luca, where can people go to find you online? Well, they can go to luca.engineer. I promise that's an actual website. Um, and that will get them to my site. What about you, Jeff? Uh, so you can go to jeffgable.com uh, and uh, you'll find some information about what I do and some of my writings and uh, a contact form. Uh, you can also easily find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Jeff Gable uh, and I'm one of the very few results. And uh, you know my contact information is in my LinkedIn profile. And again, I would love to hear from you. So this has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Njani. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.